been with us over the past two weeks, you know that we're in a series, just a four-part series during the time of Advent as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And we're looking at some of the uh, familiar, uh, perhaps becoming more familiar, hymns of this season. And this morning we're turning to one that you've already heard as you listen to the words of the prelude this morning. And you'll hear again as we sing in conclusion to our service, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. In order that we might better understand the theology of this great hymn, I would ask that you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 would not come to your minds uh, immediately or at all if you were thinking about great uh, passages to study at Christmas. But I do hope as we look at the theology of this hymn that you'll understand how important uh, the theology that Paul references here is so present in this wonderful hymn that we sing every year. This hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is one of our ancient hymns within our Trinity hymnal. It appears in our hymnal in the section that uh, begins with the Advent season and moves through Christmas and the celebration of the birth of Jesus. It's in the beginning of that section because it's, I think, meant to be sung in the very beginning of the Advent season. This is now the third Sunday of Advent, so we're a little bit beyond uh, the time, but nonetheless, we'll be blessed as we consider the theology of the hymn this morning. It is uh, a hymn that captures the idea of the sense of waiting and anticipation of someone who is to appear, who is to come, with the reference mainly, of course, to his first coming. But as I hope to show you this morning, the sense of anticipation and waiting and longing that we see at his first coming is to be present in the lives of his people today as we wait for his second coming yet to appear. The hymn, we're told, as best as we can tell, was written somewhere in the 12th century in the medieval period. And most agree that it appeared in a series of Latin hymns. So the words would originally have been in Latin. It was translated later in the 1800s to give the form that we have now in our hymnal. And it was originally written as, and I'm probably not going to say this right, an antiphon or antiphon or whatever. I think I just said it the same way twice. But um, that is a way of singing that uh, is intended to be sort of a call and response style. So even in its present form, as we have it translated in our hymnals, you can see where that would have been very, very fitting and appropriate in the five verses that we have uh, still today in our hymnals. There are five stanzas or verses, and then each one is followed by the same uh, refrain which is repeated those five times, and you can see how that would appear to be antiphonal, that it would be the verses sung, and then someone else, another party, would sing the refrain. Almost a sense of wanting to encourage the hearts of those who sing the verses, because if you follow the verses as we sing them, you'll see that there is a sense of longing in each one of them, that there is an appeal, a call for one to come. Uh, he is named in 
in various ways. And then the refrain after each of the verses says, Rejoice, rejoice, for indeed Emmanuel will come to you, O Israel. So you can think of it in different scenarios. You might think of the prisoner longing to be released who cries out and hears a response to rejoice from somewhere else, perhaps from the other side of the wall. You might hear it and see it in the context of those who are sad and despondent, who long for joy and comfort, and they too are reminded by another party, someone else reminding them that indeed rejoice, rejoice, for your salvation will come. You can think of it in the context of the weak and the suffering who long for better days and hear this refrain to rejoice, for Emmanuel will indeed come. Or you can think of it as we often think of our own lives as pilgrims and strangers in a foreign land who long for our heavenly home and who hear the call to rejoice for Jesus, our Emmanuel, will come. Some of these things, of course, are born out in the hymn itself as the words are recorded for us. And they're beautifully captured, in my opinion. I'm not a musical person by nature, but I appreciate music, and I think the music is so fitting for this particular hymn. It was written about a century after the words were translated in the 1800s. Uh, this music was written for this, and I believe it fits it beautifully and captures both the longing of the ones who cry out in the midst of their sadness uh, and the music of the refrain, which seems to me to be sudden and powerful, a reminder that the promised one will indeed come. Now, as I've said, all of these things hold true. The longing, the waiting, the anticipation uh, for us today as we wait for his second coming. That's why I love this hymn. It's not only reflecting backwards and looking at uh, the first coming of Jesus, but it is a present longing that we express through the same words. We are longing as they were longing for the appearance of our Savior, for the full revelation, the final appearance where he will make all things new. We're waiting for that still. And this hymn captures that longing and waiting of our hearts as well. It's for this reason, this sense of longing and waiting for his appearance, that I've chosen the text from the life of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So as we read this, I would ask that you would stand and give your attention to these words. It is the word of God. As Paul gives final instructions, anticipating his own death to his son in the faith, Timothy, beginning in verse one through verse eight, this is God's word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. 
for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that this word, spoken long ago, indeed, all of your word stands forever. Every jot and tittle will come to pass as you have promised. And so give us hope and confidence as we wait in this fallen and broken world as we wait with a longing, as we wait with a love for the appearance of our Savior. We pray your blessing upon us now as we study your word. Bless it to our hearts and our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I alluded to as we began uh, in the introduction, I, I have often wondered how this hymn must, must have been sung over the centuries. I think probably one of the most common ways it would have been sung is uh, in the midst of a congregation. You would simply, and in this congregation, you would simply divide the congregation in two, right down the middle. One side would sing the verse, the other side would echo back with great joy the refrain, seeking to encourage the ones on the other side who are expressing their despair and their sadness in the midst of this fallen world. As I alluded to, I think it can be imagined as being sung by individuals languishing in prison, awaiting their death sentence. That's the context of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is in prison. One can imagine Paul languishing in prison and in faith crying out those words of this great hymn. It wouldn't have been written by then, of course, but Paul knew what these words were. He understood them. But it could be the cries of one longing in each refrain on the other side of a wall, perhaps unknown to the one singing originally, there would be another brother, another believer in the Lord who would echo back and call to him and remind him that he can, in the midst of his suffering, rejoice, because Emmanuel, God with us, will indeed come. Or simply think of what we've often said, again, as I alluded to, about our pilgrimage on this earth. We are angel or aliens and strangers in this fallen world. That we are singing the realities of this life in this hymn. We are longing for the promise of the life to come, where darkness is banished along with all suffering. And then the voices of the saints now in glory singing with the angels themselves remind us that Emmanuel, our King, is indeed coming. This hymn beautifully, I think, captures what was the reality of the Old Testament saints as they long for the appearance of our Savior in his first coming as much as it is again now for those who live in this reality and who wait for his second coming at the end of the age. To better understand the rich theology of this great hymn, I just want to look at three things very briefly, three words I think that can be helpful and that I think are very clearly expressed in the hymn and I believe this passage as well. And those words are simply these, waiting, longing, and loving. Waiting, longing, and loving. 
I think and believe that we see each of them in our text this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We do know as we consider this first word waiting, we do know the context of 2 Timothy. It is very clearly Paul's farewell address to his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul is in prison now for uh, I don't know how many times, but this is the last time he's in a prison unlike the ones he was in previously where he was under house arrest in Caesar's household or some other context. This is a fairly difficult place for him to be. This is the place from which he will be taken and put to death. And he is writing to his son in the faith, again, Timothy, and giving him final directions, a final charge, if you will. You see that in verse 1, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul knows very well and very clearly that Jesus is coming again. He speaks about it constantly through his letters, and he speaks about it in this letter as well. Uh, Paul, like Timothy and other believers, see all of life for the Christian as moving in a line, in a direction, one direction to a revealed end, a promised end. And the whole of life is spent waiting for this end and anticipating his coming. This is the conscious reality of Paul's mind. He, he sees it, he understands it, he anticipates it. He is, in fact, waiting for it with great anticipation. Jesus, you may remember, as we consider his teaching on the importance of waiting for his coming, gave to us a very important parable. You may remember it in Matthew chapter 25. It is referred to as the parable of the ten virgins. This is what it says, or Jesus said. Then the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 25, verse 1, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. And then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That parable is interesting on many levels. There's lots to be said about it. But I think the main point is very clear. To those in whom Christ has worked by his sovereign grace, there is within them a waiting, a longing, a desire for the one who called them to appear, to fulfill his promise and to come to them again. And Jesus warns that there are among even his people, if you will, the visible church, those who are foolish, who do not hear or trust the word of Christ and who prove themselves to be in the end, not his. 
These words at the end of this great parable remind us of the words of Matthew 7 when he speaks to those who have done great and wonderful works in his name. Be gone from me, from me, for I never knew you. He says here in these verses, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so the principle is clear to know Christ, to know him by grace and through faith is to be one who waits for his appearing. And waiting for his appearing means that we are to be prepared, to be looking for his appearing in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, to live all of life in anticipation and a waiting for this final, final chapter to be written, when Christ shall appear as he promised. Paul clearly in this passage and others lives and anticipates the coming of Christ. He is one who is waiting for Jesus. Does that shape your life and your mind as you live day by day in the midst of this busy and broken world? Do you live with a conscious sense and reality that your Savior is coming and that he could come at any moment, as the parable here says? And that we're not to be caught off guard as those who live carelessly without any reference to the promises that he's made. And you see, I think that's the point of this idea of waiting. Waiting is informed by revelation. It's what he told us. And that was true of those who in the early days of his first coming were there waiting for the consolation, as the text says in Luke chapter 2 of Israel. They had a revelation from God, a picture from God uh, in his word that said there is one, a Messiah who is coming. I want you to be waiting and anticipating his coming. That's why the hymn writer, I think, beautifully captures this revelation, which which calls forth this waiting on the part of the believer. In the first stanza, he references, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This passage, of course, Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin to be with child, she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then the revelation that we have of God being, O come, O come, thou Lord of might, El Shaddai, the strong and mighty God, first revealed in Genesis 17 to Abraham and Sarah as they were promised that God would give them a son, and that through that son would the Messiah come. And then, of course, in the third stanza, the rod of Jesse, a beautiful image in Isaiah chapter 11. A picture of one who would rise out of a, a stump. All that is left of the line of David is a stump, but a rod, a branch will come out of it that will spring forth and bring life, referencing Jesus. In the fourth stanza, you heard that passage read from Malachi chapter 4. He is the day spring that comes from on high or the sun rising with healing in his wings, according to Malachi chapter 4. And then a more vague reference, but no less true, is Isaiah 22, that he is the key of David, referenced later in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. You see, all of these are in the Bible. All of these were given to God's people. They were all statements about Jesus, and they were all meant to stir within the hearts of his people a waiting for him, an anticipation. Is that how we are living our lives today, looking for, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? 
Well, I think building upon waiting is the sense of longing, which is the second word I've referenced. Longing is far more than waiting. We know that. And here you hear the longing in the beautiful hymn and the words of the hymn. When he references Emmanuel, he references that he would come to ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here. When he references the rod of Jesse, the image and a picture of his his rule, his kingship, he says that he would free us from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell, thy people save. And the day spring on high, which is a reference to the healing that he brings. He speaks of one who will come to cheer us by thy drawing nigh and disperse the gloomy clouds of night. And then again, the key of David, you hear this idea that that key, the key of David, Jesus himself would open wide our heavenly home and make safe the way that leads on high. This is a beautiful hymn that captures in its theology the full revelation of the Old Testament regarding the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew this. Paul knew these words. He knew these passages. He knew what it meant to not only live waiting for Jesus, but actually to long for Jesus, to long for his coming. I think you see the longing here, even in the verse, the verse eight is, I think, to me, the the key verse here. But you hear this longing in verse eight. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Paul has given a great deal of thought to what this crown of righteousness is. And I think with all scholars, uh, most at least, I agree that what Paul has in mind here is not some specific particular crown for him and him only. He makes clear reference to that, that it's not just for him. But it's a picture of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ granted to us by faith and through faith that enables us to stand before his presence with great joy and with great confidence. This is the great aim of our salvation, that we are clothed with and receive and possess a righteousness that is alien to us, a righteousness that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember, and I hope you can remember the words of the Apostle Paul in this context as he writes in Philippians 3. Remember what he said about his heritage, his life prior to Christ. He says, I count everything, everything that he raised up as that which is to be admired and perhaps in which he might place his trust. But this is what he says. I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law by works, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You can hear the longing in his words. The longing for a righteousness that is not from the works of the law, not by anything that he has ever done, but that comes by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. A righteousness that God gives. This is his longing in this passage. He, he longs for this crown of righteousness. And when will that be given to him? 
It will be given to him when Christ returns at his second coming. Not only is he waiting, as all the Old Testament saints did, but he is longing as well, longing for his coming and appearance, longing for the righteousness that Christ alone gives. I think in the New Testament reading, as we heard you hear two of my very favorite characters from the Christmas story, all of us have favorites. Simeon and Anna, for me, are the top of the list as I read through the passage year after year, as you do as well. But you meet them in chapter 2 of Luke. And in chapter 2, you meet Simeon, who is spoken of as waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then you hear Anna, who essentially is doing the same. These are two elderly saints who live all of their lives, as it were, in the temple. You hear, you see not only a waiting, but clearly a longing. And what you see and hear as well is that that longing is fully satisfied when they behold the child in Mary's arms. And Simeon himself says, now you can take me, Lord. I'm ready to go because I have seen the fulfillment of everything I have longed for. We still wait for that as believers today, but that longing is the same. And our longing will be satisfied as well. When Jesus returns, there will be within our hearts a joy and a satisfaction that we have never known because our longing will finally be realized and our joy fulfilled. So there's a waiting, there's a longing, and I think there is, of course, thirdly, a loving. Paul makes that point especially clear in these verses. And verse 8, again, I think is central to this. He's waiting, he's longing for this crown of righteousness to be clothed fully in the righteousness of Christ. He, he knew he was already positionally with respect to his relationship to God, but there is an anticipation of a full revelation of what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ when Jesus comes. But he says here very clearly that this righteous judge who judges righteously will award me on that day this crown of righteousness, but not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. This all fits together, doesn't it? The one who waits is the one who longs. The one who longs is the one who loves. That's the progress of the work of God's grace in our lives. We, we are brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ by the sovereign grace and mercy of God. And immediately we sense that waiting and we wait with anticipation growing within our hearts as day after day passes. As we wait, there is a longing that develops within us, right? A longing for his appearance, a longing to be delivered from the bondage of this world, from sin, which rages within us still from the sadness and the gloom of the darkness of this life. And then out of that longing comes an ever-increasing love for the one that we're waiting for. That's why the marriage picture is so beautiful as you think about the groom there waiting for the Lord to bring and to present to him the bride that he has prepared for him. And as the groom stands there, so many look at the groom's face, not the bride, but at the groom's face, because there on his face, the waiting, the longing and the loving reach their full peak as he looks down the aisle and he sees the one whom God has prepared. That's the progress of this picture that we have here, even in the Apostle Paul. And he says, 
that this crown of righteousness belongs to all, not just to him, but to all who have loved his appearing. To love Jesus and to say this morning before the Lord, I love Jesus, is to long for him and is to long for his appearing, to love his appearing. His appearing, his coming again in glory will not be for us a sad day. It can't be. It will not be for us a scary day. It can't be. Because our Savior is coming, the one who died in our place. It is where our love will be fully satisfied as we see him again in glorious stress. All who have loved this phrase here in verse 8 all who have loved his appearing is in the Greek a perfect tense. It means that it is a thing, a love that began in the past, but continues on until it is satisfied, which means that it continues until the desired object appears. That is when Jesus himself returns. It is an ever-increasing, ever-deepening love and affection for our Savior that is fully satisfied when he returns. One writer, Patrick Fairbairn, says this in his commentary. He says, this is a remarkable characteristic. How rarely it is possessed by believers as it ought to be. If they must justly be represented as loving Christ... Yet how seldom should we think of describing them as loving precisely his appearing when he shall come to wind up the affairs of his administration and work and distribute to everyone as his case may be. To love him in this respect speaks not only of faith, but such a full assurance of faith and hope in him as will cast out all fear and carries with it the confidence that when he appears, we shall also appear with him in glory. The words of the Apostle John. And then Matthew Henry says about this as well. And they're both remarking on the character of this love for his appearing. It is the character, Matthew Henry writes, of all the saints that they love the appearing of Jesus Christ. They loved his first appearing when he appeared to take away sin by the sacrifice of himself. They love to think of it. They love his second appearing at that great day. They love it. They long for it. And with respect to those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ, he shall appear to their joy. For there is a crown of righteousness reserved for them, which shall then be given to them. The crown this crown, which believers shall wear, is laid up for them. They have it not at present, for here they are all but heirs. They have it not in possession, and yet it is sure, for it is laid up for them. The righteous judge will give it to all who love, who prepare for, and who long for his appearing. Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The hymn that we sing, the passage that we've just looked at, the life of the Apostle Paul, the Old Testament saints like Simeon and Anna, of Timothy himself and all who know the Lord Jesus Christ have these common things in their lives. 
There is a waiting for him, a patient waiting. There is an ever-increasing longing for his appearance, for we long to be fully clothed in that consummate, ultimate sense with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there is an ever-increasing love for his appearing. We look for it. We anticipate it. We pray for it. We long for it. This captures our lives, I believe, so well as we live in the day in which we live, even as it did for the saints who waited for his first appearance. O come, O come, Emmanuel, captures all of these, the waiting, the longing, and the loving. Are you one this morning as we prepare to sing this hymn at the conclusion of our sermon? Who can be said to be waiting patiently for this Savior, to be increasingly longing for his appearance, and to love it, to love it and to know that your love will be satisfied with great joy at his appearance? This, I think, is the great question this Christmas season and always. Because he is, as Paul says, our greatest gift, our greatest reward, our indescribable gift given to us. He is our crown of righteousness that is reserved for us and given to us by a righteous judge. Are you able to say with the Apostle Paul that you long for this one to come and his appearance? The Apostle Paul was about to die. He was standing on the very... Uh, precipice of death itself. He knew what was on the other side. He knew that it meant he would see his Savior. He knew that it meant he would be, receive this crown of righteousness, and he was filled with joy. There's no fear here. There's no anticipation of judgment. There's no expectation of God's wrath. There is only joy as he recognizes that his waiting, his longing, and his loving will finally be satisfied when he sees Christ. And he is as he is. Remember when we began, I mentioned that this antiphonal hymn was written from the perspective of those longing for change and for a promise to be fulfilled. We considered briefly as we let our minds wander about some of the contexts in which we might hear this. The prisoner who is awaiting death, longing to be released, the sad and despondent one who longs for joy and comfort, the weak and suffering who long for better days, the pilgrim and stranger who long for their heavenly home. All of these are great contexts to think about this hymn. If you know me well enough, you know what my favorite movie is. You know that I can't help but say this. It is also the cry of a people living in Pottersville, who long for Bedford Falls, where life is wonderful. That's really a picture of what this is, why I love that movie so much. It is, and it does express, the cry of a people who live in a place like Pottersville, but who long for what they knew, Bedford Falls, what was destroyed because of sin. That really does capture in my mind the theology of this great hymn, and of our lives, as long as we, as we long for his appearing. The only difference is we're not waiting and longing for George Bailey, but we are waiting and longing for our Savior and our King, our Lord and Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, and our Emmanuel. He is coming, believer, because he promised he would. He's bringing with him to all who believe and rest in him a crown of righteousness 
that he will give as a righteous judge to everyone, listen, to everyone who loves his appearing. And so wherever you are, wherever you are this Christmas season, whatever burdens you face, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Let us pray. Father, you have set before us a wonderful promise in the person of your son and his coming again in power and in glory. You have set forth in your word in every place this promise so that in our hearts, as you draw us to yourself in saving faith, there grows within us a waiting and a longing and a loving of our Savior and of his appearance. We pray, even as we sing this hymn afresh with these words of understanding now, that you would stir within our hearts an ever-increasing measure of these things, that we would be a people characterized by this waiting and longing and loving, and that we would continue to live our lives with our eyes looking unto the heavens and awaiting the coming of our great Savior and King, for we pray it in his name. Amen.